Now Evangelist presents Contrast. Your comments and questions will be greatly appreciated. Permission is given to record and copy the entire message. And now, here is Richard Bennett. The topic I'm dealing with is true and false worship, the cross and the man. Now personally, this is very difficult for me. 48 years I did worship in the Mass devoutly, thinking that it was the centerpiece. And I know for you who are from a Roman Catholic background, or those of you who still are Catholics, that this is central to your worship. But like Christ Jesus, we have to hold to the truth. We have to hold to his words and the written word he has given us in the Holy Spirit. What biblically is worship? Worship is that communion with God in true harmony, recognizing who he is in fellowship with him, that glorifies him in spirit and in truth. Something wonderful. Before the fall, Adam had perfect, he had perfect communication with God with one restriction and that was that he was not to eat of the forbidden fruit. The fall came and Adam rebelled and then Adam was left trying to cover himself to do a works righteousness and then God initiated how worship was to be established by grace through faith it is right the way through scripture and the promise of one to come whose heel would be bruised in Genesis 3.15 God promised the perfect lamb right through the Old Testament he established the pattern for worship trusting on him who was to come the wonder of worship that God establishes by grace through faith and we see that all alien worship like Adam Figley or any anything like Nadab and Abihu making strange fire or even Cain's grain offering was not acceptable and right through right through the Old Testament and the New Testament we're told that false worship is spiritual adultery or fornication. That's how serious it is to see that worship is established by God. What is the basis for true worship? The basis is that there must be conformity. There must be conformity between the all-holy God and the creature. Because God is the thrice holy one, and we are unholy creatures, there must be conformity. Again, by grace, through faith, it is God that gives this conformity. This is what it means to be in right relationship with him, to be truly saved. And so we see his commandment to worship God in the beauty of holiness. How can we do that? It is only if we accept by his grace through faith that we are 
covered with his righteousness. And that was the exact words of Isaiah in Isaiah 61 verse 10. I'm covered with the robe of righteousness. And Isaiah says in 45, One shall say in that day, My righteousness is in him. And look at the prayers in the Old Testament, for example, in Psalm 71. I will make mention of thy righteousness, thine only. It is God's righteousness that the Old Testament believer believed in. He looked onto who God was. And it is summarized so beautifully in chapter 23 of Jeremiah. What does Jeremiah say? He says, God, our righteousness. That's where we stand to worship. Not looking onto works or anything that we do, but His grace. Through faith, which is spiritual application of what He has done. And then Paul in the New Testament says, this is manifested. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, without the law, is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon them that believe there is no difference. God's righteousness is upon you, so that you can worship Him in the beauty of holiness. This is so wonderful. And are the restrictions? Yes, indeed, there are restrictions. God is quite clear that while we are in conformity to Him, there are very serious restrictions to worship. Worship is to be done according to His law. The law summarized in the Ten Commandments and written in our hearts as was prophesied in Jeremiah 31 in the New Testament. It is written in our hearts. What does the first commandment say? It says there is only one object that you can worship. There is only one true God who will have no strange God, no other God before him. And so no object or no other being may be worshipped. You cannot talk to, invoke any other creature, and you cannot venerate or worship anyone else except the one true God. So that is the restriction that is of absolute importance. Equally important is the fact, equally important is the fact that we are not to worship this one through God sanctioned in the first commandment. We're not to worship him in any material representation. The second commandment, forbidding the likeness of anything divine, either to be made or to be served, to be worshipped. And so that is explicitly clear in the second commandment. That you are not to try and contain God in anything physical, we are not to bow down or worship anything as the true God. The very error that Aaron made in Exodus 32, where he made the golden calf to have a feast to the God of Israel, trying to use the golden calf as a medium, as an intermediary between the true God 
and his people. That is forbidden. And so there are restrictions in the Old Testament. Even amidst the paraphernalia of the Old Testament, we had the ceremonial law and the temple and all the paraphernalia. You see that God commanded the people to have their hearts on him, not in the physical things. In the words of the Apostle Paul, the physical things were our schoolmaster to lead to Christ. They were a shadow of the things to come, but not the reality. They were the promise which was fulfilled in the person of Christ. So even in the midst of the Old Testament paraphernalia, what do we find? The prayers, the constant theme like in Psalm 18, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my strength, my high power. The wonder of God being the center of where I put focus my faith. That is the Old Testament. And coming into the New Testament, we're told the wonder of this worship we have of him. In the words of the Apostle Peter, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. A spiritual house offering spiritual praise where? In Christ Jesus. That is New Testament worship. And that's what the New Testament believers did. They were true to the doctrine of the apostles, the true gospel, to fellowship with God and each other, and to the breaking of bread and prayers in Acts 2 and verse 42. There is no hint given of relying on material things or objects, but it is always, as Paul said, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It is in Christ that we put our hope. There is a distinctive in the New Testament, and the Lord spoke about this to the woman at the well. First of all, he reiterated what it was in the, in the Old Testament, that worship was to be in spirit and in truth. True worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. But he indicated that the time was coming where there was going to be not just in Jerusalem or any place else, but there was going to be a distinctive change in form. And that did indeed happen, dramatized on the cross where Christ declared it is finished. And at the same moment, the veil of the temple was cut from top to bottom, signifying finishing and completion and fulfillment of the ceremonial law. And this is quite important to see. The shadow is gone, now we have the reality. And the New Testament continues to drum into us, as it were, so that we would not be deceived. Why it is so important that the sacrifices are gone and we now have one sacrifice, one offer, so that we wouldn't be deceived. The contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We would see the contrast. The very thing that the Holy Spirit 
impresses on us. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in high. Christ is seated. He is no longer offering. For by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. One offering forever, the Holy Spirit in the written word tells us. And the concept once is so important that the Holy Spirit gives it to us seven times. Once in Romans, five times in Hebrews, and also in First Peter. For example, Romans chapter 6 and verse 10. For that in he died, he died unto sin once. And in Hebrews chapter 10, by which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Emphasizing the fact that the uniqueness of his offering, the perfection of his offering, was that it could only be once offered. The perfection of Christ Jesus' offering. And then the contrast that the Holy Spirit gives us in the written word, showing us that there were many priests who were mortal men in the Old Testament. There were many priests. But in the New Testament, we have one mediator who is the one sacrificial priest. No other. We have one high priest. And the New Testament emphasizes this so that we see the form is changed because of the perfection of Christ Jesus' sacrifice. And so we see, for example, how explicit is the Holy Spirit in the written word. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 and 24. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath a non-changeable priesthood. The word is explicit in the Greek, a parabatos, means it is not transferable. It cannot be handed to anybody else. It is also the reason why he had the attributes that could not be transferred to anybody else. He was, in the words of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 26, we have such a high priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens. Can anybody fit those qualifications? Only Christ Jesus. So it's untransferable. Turn to your New Testament. You find elders, pastors, teachers, and deacons. Do you find any priests? sacrificially mentioned? No. There's one royal priesthood that all of us share of spiritual praise, but no sacrificial priesthood whatsoever. And that is explicitly clear in the pages of Scripture, underlined by the Holy Spirit. For anyone to deem themselves fit to Offer the immortal Christ so that God in heaven is blasphemous pride. Since we do not have sacrificial priesthood and we have only one declared in the New Testament who offers. And to, to say that Christ's sacrifice should be offered many times 
is to debase it because repetition signifies imperfection. What is repeated is presumed to be imperfect. What is consummated and final cannot be repeated. It can be remembered with praise and thanksgiving. And so the importance of this emphasized and emphasized in the New Testament, for example, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27, speaking of Jesus Christ, who needed not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, for this he did once when he offered up himself. And so the New Testament glorious truths of Scripture, that God sets the pattern what is to be done and what is not to be done. That he sets the restrictions. He only is the object and there's been no divination in trying to look to a material thing to, to capture him or as a means of communication between him and us. That he alone is where we focus our faith. And then that we we are to worship him spiritually because he is a spiritual being in spirit and in truth. And the glory of what it is to know him. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. And he shall dwell with them. And they shall be his people and we shall be. He shall be our God. The glory of what it is to, to know God in spirit and in truth. The wonder of New Testament worship. Summarized in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. And now of which things we have spoken. This is the sum. We have such an high priest. Who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in high. That is the glory of what we have. As New Testament worshippers. We come now to the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. We come now to the official teaching of Rome. Rome says in her document, and I quote now exactly word for word from her document. Quoting first of all from Vatican II documents, and it is in the Flannery Collection, document number nine. It is volume one, and it is section three. Quotation, for in the sacrifice of the Mass, our Lord is immolated when he begins to be present sacramentally as the spiritual food of the faithful under the appearances of bread and wine. It was for this purpose that Christ entrusted this sacrifice to his church. Here, the Roman Catholic Church says we have immolation. Check any dictionary. To immolate is to kill, to sacrifice, or to offer a sacrifice. They're saying that on their altars they have immolation. They say it is a true propitiatory sacrifice, appeasing the Holy God, and it is to be offered for the living and the dead. Present day, New Catechism and Vatican Council to ratify the curse given under the section of the Eucharist in Canon 3 of Trent, that if anyone does not hold 
that the sacrifice is propitiatory, he is eternally cursed. Anathema. That's how serious the Catholic Church says is their immolation on their altar of utmost importance before a holy God. We have to see that this is a negation not just of those continued words in the seven times that the Holy Spirit gives us that it was offered once but even of the very words of Christ Jesus. You know the words. He spoke it in Mark 14, Matthew 26. What did he say? Take and eat this. Who was he talking to? Was he talking to his Father in heaven? No, he's talking to the believers, the apostles. He says, take and eat this. That is not offer and propitiate explicitly clear even in the words of institution let alone the many times we're given the phrase that he offered himself once and the Roman Catholic Church calls their mass the source and the summit of the whole of the Christian life and they say that the Catholic is to offer him or herself with the sacred victim. I read again, document number 9, volume 1, section 3. Quotation, consequently, the Eucharistic sacrifice is the source and the summit of the whole of the church's worship and of the Christian life. The faithful participate more fully in this sacrament of thanksgiving, propitiation, petition and praise, not only when they wholeheartedly offer the sacred victim and in it themselves to the Father with the priest, but also when they receive the same victim sacramentally. Here they look upon Christ as the sacred victim. Was Christ ever a sacred victim? What did he say about his offering, offering his own perfect life? He said, I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. He was never a sacred victim. On the cross he was the victor. For you and for me offering himself once. And to purport that you could offer yourself with the sacred victim on an altar here in present day world. That you have a victim there on the altar and you are to offer yourself with him is works righteousness that the Bible constantly forbids. It is grace alone, faith alone. Not anything that we do. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so, this is quite serious. What are the words? What did I say when I was 22 years a priest? Eucharistic prayer number three. Exact quotation. Talking to God in heaven. Look with favor on your church's offering and see the victim whose death has reconciled us to yourself. What I was asking God to do, to look on the victim there on the altar. He was never victim and he is not victim. That's how serious it is. 
Can we sit in the face of Jesus Christ? Oh, blaspheme the all-holy God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, seated at the right hand of the majesty and high. And then the Roman church says, quite emphatically, in the New Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1367, direct quotation, for in the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offered through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. This divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in a non-bloody manner in a non-bloody manner. Three things are claimed here. First of all, that Christ is contained. Second, that he is offered. Third, it's a non-bloody manner. Let us look at these three things biblically. Is Christ contained in any physical object? He can't be. That's what the second commandment forbids. God cannot be contained in any physical object or worship in any physical object. And then the scripture is emphatic. It says the opposite. Christ is not entered into holy places made with hands, which are figures of the two, but into heaven itself. Scripture says the opposite. When I was a priest, and those of you who are still Catholics would remember the word, that every single mass, the priest says, we have this bread to offer which earth has given and human hands have made. And we held up the pattern with the bread. We were declaring that the bread was made with human hands. And this is the substance that we said became the substance of Christ's body. Declaring that human hands had made it. The very thing that scripture says is not so. That Christ is not entered into anything made with human hands. And then Christ himself says, if, if, if you say he's in the secret places, believe it not. For the lightning cometh from the east and good even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. When he comes back physically, every eye will see him. We're not to believe in Jesus' own words in Matthew 24, verse 26, that he is in a secret place. We said he was in the tabernacle, so the new catechism says. And we see that the second thing they claim is that he is offered. Scripture says repeatedly, no, he's not offered. For example, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, and the previous verse 25, nor yet that he should offer himself often, for then he must have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, in the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The very concept that it's not daily offerings. It was once. Because if he was to suffer continually, then we would be bringing ignominy on the very person of Christ Jesus. 
they claim that it is in a non-bloody manner is quite unbelievable. Because if you study the pages of scripture, you will see that propitiatory sacrifice demands suffering and blood. It is continuously told us in the pages of scripture. And it is so clear that it is made a principle in scripture. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22, without the shedding of blood there is no remission. The very definition of propitiatory sacrifice is that there is blood. And so to claim a sacrifice that is bloodless is a contradiction in terms, and sadly, it can have no other purpose other than to deceive. There is no such thing, it contradicts itself. The Church of Rome talks continually about transubstantiation. And based on that, it claims that the species or the element is to be worshipped with the worship that is due to the true God. Reading from our own words, she says the following. And this is, again, from the same passage. It is volume 1, section 3 of the plenary edition of the, the council document. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that all the faithful ought to show to this most holy sacrament the worship which is due to the true God as has always been the custom in the Catholic Church nor is it to be adored any the less because it was instituted by Christ to be eaten the Church of Rome claims that what is to be eaten is no less to be worshipped so this again attempts to break the second commandment and it, it attempts to negate Christ's own words of institution. What did Christ say? Take, eat. Did he say worship as God this element? Worship this species? He said simply take, eat. To purport what is to be taken into the mouth and ingested and brought down into the stomach. To, be, to purport that this physical element should be worshipped as God is idolatry, pure and simple. Now I say this with compassion because I devoutly did that for years, going down on my two knees to worship the bread. I say it with pain, having been 48 years doing that thing. But now to recognize the truth of Scripture, that we cannot worship a physical thing claiming that it is God. We cannot, without impiety, and grossly negating scripture hold a physical element to contain the one true God. The whole concept of transubstantiation in the Roman Church was only officially proclaimed in 1215 at the Fort Lateran Council. 
the physics behind it we learned and priests still must study the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle because that was our physical base the physics of Aristotle which of course is no longer accepted in the modern world because it doesn't add up so that was our basis the physics of Aristotle it had its roots after the second council of Nicaea in 787 where idolatry was first of all sanctioned in the Catholic Church so that a thing could be looked upon as containing God and that's where it began and we see it growing then and being established in the 13th century what does the new catechism say they repeat Trent word for word and they say in paragraph 1376 this council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood this change the Holy Catholic Church as fittingly and properly called transubstantiation now this defies not just God's written word where it says we are not to worship or make anything that is graven but it also defies even reason and the evidence of the senses and most seriously also it negates the very words of institution for Christ Jesus gave us the supper what did Christ Jesus say? Take, eat, this. What does the pronoun this mean? It can only mean this bread. There's nothing else it can mean. Take, eat, this. And we find, for example, in the Apostle Paul, he talked about this bread after the words of institution, showing that it is the bread. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread, whosoever shall eat this bread, so let a man examine himself and eat of that bread. The pronoun this can only mean bread, and that's what Scripture tells us. So we have an attempt to break the second commandment, to defy even reason we have a reasonable faith the scripture tells us and then to go against the very words of institution it was the same with the wine Christ speaks in Matthew and also in Mark about the fruit of the vine after the words of institution this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many verily I say to you I will no more drink of the fruit of the vine after the words of institution in communion we have a real communion with him we worship God in spirit and in truth we look to him in the heavenly we seek to be conformed unto him in spirit and in truth it was a consistent command in the Old Testament from Genesis 9 onwards not to drink blood it is also given to us in the New Testament that we are not to drink blood in Acts 
chapter um, 15. We're told that the commandment of God not to drink blood. We're told that the spiritual power of believing on Christ Jesus shed blood. For example, in 1 John chapter 1 verse 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now to somehow imagine that Christ Jesus could be saying that we were to break the Old Testament commandment not to drink blood or the New Testament commandment and that he was giving us his blood physically is to sin against the words of scripture and the person of Jesus Christ. And this is quite seriously breaking of the third commandment which we are commanded, we're commanded to hold God's name as holy and not to take his name in vain. Christ upheld the Old Testament teaching of not physically to drink blood. The concept of transubstantiation is applied and they look to the elements as giving life, as a power tool as it were. For example, in the New Catechism in 1393, the Catholic Church says the following, Holy Communion separates us from sin. The body of Christ which we receive in Holy Communion is given up for us. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. They look to the Eucharist, the species of the elements, to separate you from sin. This is divination, looking to a material thing to have power. This is quite serious. And the New Catechism says also in 1395, similar words, by the same charity that it enkindles in us, the Eucharist preserves us from future mortal sins. They look upon the Eucharist as preserving us. So the Catholic mindset is on the physical elements, the species as we called it. They're looking to it to separate them from sin. Is this important before the All-Holy God? Yes, indeed. Because our God has, in Galatians chapter 1, condemned the perversion of the gospel message, grace through faith. To purport something else, to separate you from sin, is a negation of the very good news of the gospel. And that's how serious it is. Christ Jesus spoke about believing on him in John chapter 6. And it is explicitly clear as the midday sun. When Christ spoke, he said, for example, in John 27 of the same chapter 6, he said that you are to hunger for the meat that endures to everlasting life and not for that which perishes. So he's obviously not talking about some physical bread that perishes but the meat that endures to everlasting life. He's speaking about spiritual reality from the beginning. And then he says when he's asked by the Jews what may they do that they may do the work of God. 
How can they have this bread of life? What does he say? This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. To appropriate it spiritually, to believe on him, it could not be clearer. That's the meaning of John 6. And then in verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. When you believe on him, you never thirst. It is faith, not physical ingesting of his flesh or physically drinking his blood. It's believing on. And that's how the Lord himself explained it. How serious is it to believe on Jesus? If you're here today and you have not believed on him and him alone, how serious is it? In verse 55 he says, My flesh is meat indeed, my blood is drink indeed. This is how serious it is. How did he interpret that? And that is the keynote factor. How did Jesus Christ interpret eating his flesh and drinking his blood? It's there in the same chapter 6, verse 63. For he says, it is the spirit that gives life. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. This is quite serious. I ask you as the individual Catholic here to believe on him, to know him. I ask that you may cry out to him for his grace. Lord Jesus, that I may believe on you. You command me to believe that I may believe on you. And he is faithful and true. A humble and contrite heart he will not spurn. I ask you that you look unto him spiritually. Cry out for his grace and then profess your faith in him alone and know the glory and the wonder of who he is. And then to worship him in spirit and in truth. As a true believer then, to know that we have such a high priest who is set down on the throne of the majesty on high. In the words of Hebrews 1, when he had by himself purged the sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty in high. And may God be glorified and so saved. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If the Lord touches you, we'd love to hear from you. Visit our website at www. B-E-R-E-A-N-Beacon.org Goodbye and God bless you. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com
It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.